If American English isn't your native language, how do you navigate all the expressions, metaphors, and slang? This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with Jeremy Heflin, Emerson College Associate Director of English Language Learning, about the intricacies and challenges of ELL. Jeremy Heflin, you're the Associate Director of English Language Learning at Emerson College. Yeah, that's correct. Essentially, that's ESL, English as a Second Language. In many respects, yes. ESL has been the terminology used to talk about instructing students outside of a home country. EFL, English as a Foreign Language, is the term used most likely when you're talking about instructing students within a non-native English-speaking country, teaching them English. The reason why we use ELL here is just the idea that most or many students, English isn't a second language. It could be the seventh, the twelfth, the number of abilities that someone has in linguistics. We just don't want to constrain it. So we stick to ELL, even though ESL truly is the more known simple phrase that goes ahead and covers English language learning. Now, at Emerson College, are there many students where English is a second language? How many people have challenges regarding English because it's not their primary language? There's quite a number of students here who have English as a second or tertiary language. There is about uh, 14% to 18% of the population at Emerson are least having English as a second or as one of their tertiary languages. So quite a number of people, but that also doesn't mean that someone isn't skilled or adept in the language. Quite a number of students at Emerson were brought up with both a one language that might have been a home native language, a familial language, uh, immigrant language, as well as English. Others who have actually moved to the United States at a previous point specifically to go to, say, high school or boarding school so that they would improve their English language and be more adept within the academic English culture of the U.S. prior to moving on to higher education. I understand. So let's assume you're a student here at Emerson, mm-hmm. and do you self-identify that you have challenges? Are there English tests or proficiency tests you must take? How does one come into your fold? Within Emerson and like many other higher education uh, institutions, For students who are coming over from foreign countries who are going to be applying for a school as an international student, as a foreign national applying to the school, they're going to be taking standardized tests such as the IELTS or the TOEFL or probably the two most commonly known. So that immediately recognizes someone as a non-native English speaker as they're coming in unless they are from a country that English is the native language. Uh, which, of course, there are many in the world, and that that's one way. Another way is that students may go ahead and request assistance. And so going to any number of the silos here at Emerson that supply support for academics or for uh, culture or co-curriculars, they may come across people who are saying, you know, are you interested in, or they request themselves for assistance with English language support. So somebody's referred to you. What's the process look like after that? Once a student comes in to see me, we're usually setting up for anywhere from like 15 minutes to an hour. I 
have information up front over what they were looking for. And we just kind of peel apart the layers of, is it something that's academic oriented? Is it something that's more a, a cultural perspective? Or are they looking for a service that maybe I not, I'm not going to be able to supply, but someone else here at the school will? Well, that's interesting. Now, let's suppose it was a cultural issue. Mm -hmm. How do you approach cultural issues? To begin with, the idea of having a different academic cultural perspective is pretty important to to recognize that we're all bound by our academic backgrounds. And those are academic cultural realities that are linked to language, the way we think, the way we interact with each other, respect for elders, for instructors, how you use something as simple as like, do you call an instructor professor or teacher? Uh, Do you go by first name, last name? Simple things like that can lead to difficulties for someone of how they engage with professor say for just a simple example others could be things about that lead right into language where you're talking about americans love to use idioms and if you're sitting in a classroom with people who are constantly using idioms as a process of how they or you might want to say jibe and and jingle over how they're describing a situation it's going to be complex for someone who doesn't have that as a background. And how can anyone keep up with phraseology that is not based in the words themselves? It's it's a known abstract idea that we get used to. So that right there in itself is, is cultural, albeit it is linguistically oriented. Similar things when you look at an academic perspective, the student may be wondering how it is to engage with a professor, how to respectfully ask for something, say in an email, or how to set up a conversation. Many different cultures don't have office hours set up. There aren't within institutional systems uh, the number of services that uh, U.S. colleges offer. So those many different things can, can lead to cultural different perceptions. And Then others, I work with the Office of International Student Affairs. One of the things I do there is we have something called Coffee and Conversation. It's a social discussion group specifically for international students. We pick topics that are about cultural engagement, uh, such as we'll bring people in to talk about uh, making friends, dating, going places around Boston for enjoyment. Actually, when do you purchase winter clothing? When is it going to be cheaper? What is the weather going to be like? how to simply strike up a conversation with on the sidewalk. And uh, many people go ahead and discuss weather as like just the base place. If, if you know even just a little bit about some of the sports teams or something about the previous night's game or the fact that there might be a storm coming, you can instantly start a conversation with someone in Boston. Well, that's great. It gives people insight into the local culture that otherwise, how would they actually know? True. Now, you mentioned phraseology. I thought that was mm-hmm. particularly interesting because I use a lot of metaphors in the way I speak. And unless you grew up with my culture, chances are you really wouldn't understand what I was trying to say. So how do you contend with that? If you're a foreign national or English isn't your, your native tongue, you're now here. Is there a phraseology term book? How does one go about figuring all this out? Now, going to that social group you mentioned, I would assume that's a great venue for that type of thing. But what do you do when you're on the spot? You're in class and your professor, some, perhaps someone like me, is using these terms that are non-familiar and, and aren't in all dictionaries. What do you do? I actually discuss with students who are in the ELL courses about this, of keeping some sort of place on their notebooks, in their computers, in one 
a phrase, an idiomatic phrase comes by, or maybe someone's dropping a colloquial or slang type item, to note it down, particularly for professors, just to be able to take down a few parts of it. You know, say someone uses in the ballpark, and just writing down ballpark, and going up to the professor afterwards and saying, you used a phrase uh, in, around, on the ballpark, what, what does that mean? And so just collecting little parts of idioms, that's going to help uh, an instructor or, or potentially, say you're in a workshop, anyone along those lines where then they can re-reference what are the idioms that they've used. There are idiom dictionaries in the library. There's online access idiom dictionaries that they can get through the library, talking to librarians. I have a couple of those dictionaries in my office. There are online ones that people can look up. There's all sorts of Google searches for it. More importantly, it's the actual ability to capture the parts of an idiom. Uh, as we know, there's numerous different slangs and idiomatic phrases that may use one or two words that show up in 10, 20, 30, 40 of them. So actually kind of getting used to being able to capture some of it helps. With friends or fellow students, turning to them within the moment of it happening, even though it may feel a little awkward, that's a place to where you can actually bridge those cultural identities where you're starting to say, well, not that I don't understand it, but you used it in this way. How would I use it? What, is it? what does it mean? And that's also a place where, say, within Mandarin, there's a number of phrases like uh, talk doesn't cook rice. The way that that gets translated is a really fascinating piece of, of how uh, we might sit here in, and like on a podcast of how the actual conversation or circular arguments lead us nowhere. Uh, idiom... Idioms are used all over the place. Slang is. It's a doorway where people can kind of chat with each other. Some that I would be cautious about turning to is there is the Urban Dictionary online. It is an open source dictionary. And there are all sorts of different means of how people describe what are some of the more slang common terms being used. The other essence of all of this is truly as I'm an older instructor, I am not keeping up with the slang of the youth today. By the time that I'm using a term such as woke, it's well past being used. It's been back to rest. Yeah, exactly. So kind of turning to your fellow, uh, whether it's a roommate or a roommate's roommate, kind of being in contact with people who are domestic students or people who have been living in the U.S. a little bit longer, that might assist in the process. Yeah, I'm wondering with American colloquialism, does it trend to go more towards sports or any particular topics? It depends on era and area in the country. Sports has a lot of different references, particularly when you're looking at like baseball being created in the United States, basketball in the United States. Those kind of references really generated out of the times that they come. Literary scholars and authors have used it so often. Poetry, the, the mass number of metaphorical or analogous use of this information has flown into our kind of ether of every day. But there's so many different references that you can look at of biotechnology that's out there today. Uh, think of 24-7. That's far from something that actually deals with sports. But at the same time, we're a nation are, that has these elements of sports, biotechnology, really kind of in the ether of what's going on in our times. It's fascinating that we have students that not only have mastered their native tongue, English, and, and many others, but it makes me wonder, is English a particularly difficult language to learn? 
English is truly one of the more complex languages in the world simply because of its, its amalgamous nature. Uh, you look at, if you're looking at the movement between who controlled the origins of language, the origins of the English language between the Normans, French, you have uh, the German hordes, uh, you have multiple points where our language really absorbs and flexes with it. Uh, many verbs are Germanic of origin, and that's the frustrating part in some respects because it doesn't have a Latin root. You really need to know what the, the actual meaning of the verb is, while when you look at a lot of nouns and adjectives, they have Latin roots, which can be kind of broken apart. A lot of scientific terms come from Latin backgrounds. The English language has morphed in many ways over a number of rules that are out there. Uh, I, I want to be very specific that I am not a linguist. However, over time I have spoken with many linguists, many other ESL scholars, a, a great instructor, the director of the language center in Jai, Taiwan at the university I worked at. She had a, a deep background on this and just discussing how the English language has rules that then have a lot of caveats with them. It's more of the idea that what is the the roots of how we learn how we learn a language and where i'm going with this is if you look at english is a stressed language you look at mandarin it's a tonal language the two of those are very different in the way that how someone is going to emphasize commentary, emphasize emotion. And it's not saying that one or the other doesn't have emotion in it, but the way that it's used in the language is really different. Everyone in one way, shape or form, even with little contact with other languages, can see that the sounds, the way that we grew up with, the way that we shape our mouth, the way we move our tongue, the uh, everything from languages that have glottal stops, to tonality, to stressing in it. You're, you're looking at that ability to say, well, how am I going to move from the language I have to another one and feel comfortable enough to practice those? Getting back to your comment about the English language, I would say it's difficult in the sense that it's migrated in many ways between cultures. It's absorbed a lot of different other rules that affect verbs, adjectives, nouns, phrases, but because of its, its, its background of flexibility, it can make it a little difficult for people to have to keep figuring out the layers of rules in place. So as some languages would have a sister language, an example, Romance languages, so French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, if you understand one in theory, it's relatively easy to understand the others. It sounds like English doesn't really have a sister language, but is it the case that we don't have an actual sibling language, but we have a whole series of second and third cousins? If I was going to comment on English compared to other languages, and when you're thinking about speaking multiple languages, I would go back to uh, think of sentence structures. And I think this is more the compatible and comparable element of, say, English to other languages. People who have, as you were saying, Latin languages, Latin-based languages, you see movements of like where the adjective goes and where the noun goes. Even using punctuation of where in Spanish you have sometimes punctuation at the beginning and the end of a sentence. Spanish and English, the verb tenses don't correlate. 
you don't have a simple straight between the two languages, something where you can say, well, this is present tense, this is present perfect. Auxiliary verb to do is not something that shows up in Spanish. When you look at Mandarin compared to Spanish, the ordering of each of the types of sentences is, has similarities in some places and in others are very different. With verb tenses in English, you don't have correlative verb tenses in Mandarin. Uh, it's, it's more along the lines of, I wouldn't say sister languages, but more along the idea of how is a sentence put together? Where are the places that words can go? Do you have collaborative ideas between languages over what adjectives mean um, and others that, that don't? In English, you have uh, use of abstract words. That what that means is they're in many respects are taken out of a need of context. You can use words uh, that are adjectives that are very specific to how you would define a noun after it that brings it into context when you put them together like dark ink or dense fog. Within Mandarin, the word that you would use to describe both fog and ink can be dense. And by the adjectival word that's attached to ink and fog, it actually is known by the speaker what that means. While within English, you're using a much more specific abstract word. We could talk about this for, for quite a while. Well, but sure. It sounds super complex. And depending on the language you're using, there's a whole different mindset that goes into that. I can imagine coming from a far off land that's culturally unique from U.S. culture, having to deal with the language, deal with the cultural, all the the significance of, of our slang, that could be quite something to overcome. Now, as a teacher who works in ESL, do you have to be familiar with the home countries of the people you're instructing in English as a second language? To kind of go off the end of what we were talking about and leaning it into this comment, I would say that it's not as dense and different as we might think in the understanding that all of us are bred and brought up in linguistics and those are tied to cultural contexts so as humans we're born with this idea of wanting to be a part of a community and hierarchies that come out of that there isn't a society that doesn't have some sort of hierarchies or because of of who you are and how you relate to someone based on gender, age, um, respect, knowledge. Think more in that sense of that's what we're trying to address is the cultural realities. The And for myself in particular and in the classroom, I'm trying to share with students the idea of what is the academic culture of a U.S. classroom. And recognizing at the same time that every single person in that room is a highly intelligent intellectual who has deep roots in understanding multicultural perspective, perspectives and more likely um, a lot of skills in intercultural communication. When we're looking at trying to teach students in a classroom, part of a baseline is to say this isn't the language, this isn't the purpose is to get you to say that English is the language that should be used. Instead, it's much more of a communication device. 
and that within this language, as much as someone from the U.S., I would say, should learn other languages, at least at the bare minimum for getting into the feel of what it's like to express in another language, to feel that experience of like, what does it mean to express joy or, or simply to say hello? And, and it, a little bit more than that to start understanding the context. From my experience of, of learning a few other languages, and I am not fluent in other languages, I have certain levels of like beginner to low intermediate. I have found that there comes moments of maybe epiphany where you might recognize what the sentence structure is. You start realizing why adjectives are used in their way because of relationships between you and your peers, between you and superior, between you and your partner's parents, why you would use a last name, why you may never get to use a first name with your partner's parents in one culture or another. It's within a couple of weeks you're sharing first names. And that in a classroom is something to share with students that it's not as implacable or implausible to go through to understand why there are requests of how we write in our culture. Sometimes there's more nuances that have to be done, that someone has to look at the difference between, say, an inductive and deductive culture. That's how we argue, where we put our, say, our thesis statements, and whether or not we're expecting the reader to completely understand what we're saying. Or like within English, it's a low context. It's expecting that the writer, it's their job to go ahead and express in detail to the reader. And there's other cultures where there's a high context understanding that when you come to what someone's speaking about, it's assumed that you know this very clearly and it's gonna result in different techniques of writing where you're gonna place things. And that's that's one of kind of the caveats of what we're trying to do in ELL or ESL is to really give students the perspective on what is the, the norm of how a structure is and not just that you know what the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth paragraph, introduction, conclusion, supporting points, but more, why is it that these are connected together? How does that compare to, say, the structure of the way you might write in your cultures? Which leads me, once again, to say back to the languages, I do think it's important that someone knows, especially in ESL, to know something of the background of the multiple cultures that you're running into. The kind of English language education that I have I've studied and what I prefer to use is something called the communicative method. And in many, Eng not just English, but with other languages, it's better to be immersed in a language and not necessarily to have someone interpreting for you. And so that you're, you're not looking at two sets of language at the same time. Of course, you're going to have to do a lot of uh, memorization of vocabulary, cross-referencing, but in an ELL classroom, you're not looking to go ahead and have someone speak multiple languages in a classroom to work with the students. Instead, the instructor has to have a deep knowledge of the English language, how it's used within what their area of expertise is, reading, writing, listening, or speaking. And then in particular, 
what is the context? Are they teaching undergrads, graduate students? Are they working at a community center? Are they working with newly arrived immigrants? What is the purpose and use of their language? What is their goals? And that's, that's really the element of once you get to know a little bit more about the cultures, and hopefully through your extent of teaching someone English, you have the opportunity to really start recognizing that, that the person, people that you're working with are very willing to share their culture with you, and that you yourself are sharing culture in the process. Uh, it's, it's, it's a basis of what we kind of hope for is to learn about each other. And I would say that's, that's one of the reasons why I like working with the English language. For those in the academic world, what are three takeaways that they should keep in mind when dealing with students that have English as a second language? Recognizing that anyone that you have in your classroom is an intellectual equal, that language is a tool that is being used in some ways or means to be able to get to the place that of knowledge that the instructor is trying to teach, uh, that there are means out there for students who have gotten in and who have been accepted, who have met the standards of the language tests, the SATs, GREs, whatever they happen to be, that this person is capable. It may not meet the depth of how deeply an instructor may want to dive into their topic or material. If that's the case, then turn to others that are at the campus to say, how can we help this student achieve? And be as specific as you can about not so much thinking of how are they deficient or they're not capable, but more along the lines of what is the student learning outcomes? What do I want them to achieve? And then we can put that into something much more specific than just saying it's an issue with language. Let's talk about what are the elements that you want them to learn? Is it about public speaking? If so, what are the elements of public speaking? Are you looking for, is it the fluidity? Is it the pronunciation? Uh, instead, maybe what you're really looking for is how do they organize? Are they using a logical, coherent process of describing it? Do they recognize, say, fiction writing, uh, the idea of how you build uh, main characters, how that links to a plot? The more that an instructor can deeply look at what the student should be using the language for, the easier it is for whoever is supporting the student to be able to guide the student towards how to do it. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Jeremy Heflin, the Associate Director of English Language Learning at Emerson College. I'm your host, Mark Brody. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. We had studio help from David Craighead and editorial direction from Andrew Cassidy. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.